morning. As we read the scripture, if you are able to stand, we're going to read Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them, and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is your word. It is, uh, it is what you would speak to us this morning, and it is what you would have us to consider that our hearts might be changed. And Though these words may be difficult, uh, Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and our spirit today, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, and that uh, the things that are from you would be quickly remembered, the things that are not from you would be forgotten. And we thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So if you've looked at the bulletin, you just have to be thinking, okay, why did the pastor title his sermon in some language we don't understand? right? Well, there are two reasons. Uh, the first reason is that if you were here 13 years ago when I was the interim pastor, you might remember that I used to have very obnoxious sermon titles. And, uh, and I figured that even if you weren't excited about coming to hear me give a message, you were excited to come and figure out what the sermon title meant. And so, uh, so that was part of my, uh, part of my plan. Uh, the other reason is that in the last eight years, my ministry focus, as you know from the bulletin and from what Elder Watson said, is, uh, has been in China. And um, you, uh, as a congregation, the missions committee has been very generous to continue to support Mary and I in our work. And uh, as we bring the good news to a people who know virtually nothing about Jesus, if they know anything about him, they consider him to be a myth or a legend, kind of like Bigfoot or Zeus, uh, not even a historical figure for the most part. So the title is in Chinese, How da? It says it's how da do xiao tian, which means it's it's a phrase that I use a lot in the pearl market in China. It means okay, how much does it cost? Okay, how much does it cost? How da do xiao tian, and uh, and I thought there are a lot of points of application between that uh, between our work in China and and the scripture that we read this morning, as you'll see uh, as we get further into this message. It seems that in our culture, everybody wants a bargain, right? Nobody wants to pay more than they have to for anything, whether it's Black Friday, uh, Memorial Day sales. We just had Fourth of July sales. Um, we shop on Amazon because we think we could save a couple of dollars or eBay. Anything that we can, uh, can save money on is, is something that we're excited about. Even better than that is when we get free stuff. Uh, all of the presidential candidates are, are promising us lots of free stuff. Who doesn't like free stuff? I, I, I love free stuff. It's great. And, uh, and when I go to the, the pro market, is this uh, indoor shopping kind of bazaar in Beijing. 
And when I'm in China, I, I go there every time and buy lots of knockoff things that, that say like North Face, and they're not really North Face. We call them North Farce. And, uh, and, you know, and buy lots of cheap stuff. And I've developed friendships with about a half a dozen uh, girls that have worked in this place. I mean, I've known them for eight years now. And they treat me very well, very fairly, and, and, uh, and it's a lot of fun. But sometimes you go off the grid a little bit and, uh, and start to negotiate with someone who wants to sell you something. And the rule of thumb in the pearl market is if you pay more than 10% of the opening price, you are getting ripped off. And uh, 10%, I mean, that's, you think about that, 10% is about what you're, you're wanting to pay. And so knowing virtually no Chinese, that is one phrase I do know. How da? Okay, you know, how do xiao qian? And, uh, and, and it kind of communicates, okay, I know the game. Like, I'm not going to pay, you know, 90 times what this is actually worth. What, um, what does it cost us to follow Jesus? What does it cost? If we think about that, I mean, does it cost a lot? Does it cost nothing? In, in a sense, both of those are true. Does it cost everything? You know, we understand that we're saved by grace through faith alone. And we would certainly say that our salvation costs us nothing, nothing at all. Jesus paid the debt, our debt, on the cross, and there's nothing that we can add to that. When asked what he contributed to his salvation, Martin Luther famously said nothing except for the sin that made it necessary. It's the only thing he can see. The only thing we bring to the table is our sin. We contribute nothing. It really is free. It costs us nothing. But in this passage... Jesus certainly seems to make it clear that there's a cost, and that's what we're going to explore this morning. You're lucky it's only a two-point sermon this morning, uh, and the, the first thing that I'd like us to consider is this, uh, this idea of what does discipleship actually look like. Let me read again verses 25 to 27. It says, that the great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them, and he said, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't, whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What does, does discipleship look like? Now, there were great crowds that accompanied him. Luke begins this little section with that descriptor, that there were great crowds accompanying. How many people accompanied Jesus? Well, you remember he fed 5,000 people. Right? which probably did not include the women and children. So there were potentially thousands of people who followed Jesus. Great crowds accompanied him. What did they expect to see? What did they expect to get? What, why would they follow him? Well, I think some of the reasons why they followed were, were good reasons. Jesus spoke uh, as one with authority. He spoke words of life. He spoke words of hope. He did amazing things. He valued people who were not valued in that society. He healed people. Uh, he, he had compassion on people. He, he expounded the scriptures in ways that nobody had ever heard. There were some great reasons to follow Jesus. I would also imagine that there were some folks who followed him that were just there for the show. I mean, you never really knew what Jesus was going to do or what he was going to say or how crosswise he was going to get with the Pharisees or the religious leaders of that day. I mean, it must have been a good show in some ways. But there were a lot of people following him. And if you were trying to build a megachurch, you'd say that Jesus was pretty successful in that day. But at some point, he made this turn and decided to preach it down to a handful. And, uh, and he, his words are bold, and they're extreme, and they're also quite clear. 
If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Is there a social advantage to being a Christian? You know, although in these days that may be uh, kind of waning in our society, I, I would suggest that there is. It's interesting to me that in the last presidential election, with the exception of Bernie Sanders, who is a Jew, every candidate said, I'm a Christian. They all said, I go to church. Every one of them. Uh, trying to get elected as an atheist, at least up until now, it would be a tough thing. Uh, there is a social advantage to being a Christian. If, if you went over to Quaker Bridge Mall this morning and, uh, and took a survey, how many people are Christians, um, and you did it at maybe 11 o'clock in the morning, there'd be a lot of people who would say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. And the number of people who would say that I'm a Christian in Quaker Bridge Mall would be many times over the number of people who were actually sitting in a church service that morning. But we do that because there's a social advantage. There's some reasons for saying I'm a, whether it's cultural or, you know, it's our family or, or maybe, a, you know, some interest that we have in the faith. A lot of people identify themselves that way. But what if there was no social advantage? What if when you were asked by that survey taker at the mall, are you a Christian, you were, and you answered in the affirmative, you were ridiculed and immediately lost your job? Or that you were put on a list by the government and uh, you were watched for the rest of your life because of that answer? Um, what if you were arrested immediately? Would you be so quick to identify yourself as a follower, a follower of Jesus? See, here's the thing. Accompanying Jesus is free and easy. I mean, it's really a simple thing to, to walk along and say, yeah, you know, Jesus, Jesus is great. You know, to accompany Jesus. Following Jesus is not so easy. And he said, if we want to be his disciple, it's going to look different than accompanying him. Now, this, this phrase that he uses, you must hate your mother and your father, brother and sister, even your own life. I, it's interesting checking commentaries, um, and I didn't do the Greek, but I, you know, but I, but no, actually I did. But but looking at the commentaries, looking at the commentaries, it's amazing to me how many of them. And, and if you go online and read, you know, articles about this, they will try to soften that word, and they'll say, "Wait, Jesus didn't really mean hate. You know, he, he meant just you know, like you value one thing more than another." And, and they try to soften the blow a bit. You know, it really does mean hate. <laughs> the word really does mean hate. It's, it's translated accurately. It's translated in the same way that we would use the word. Now, but here's the problem. Did Jesus actually preach that we should hate people? Well, nowhere else in the scripture do we see that, that he is saying, well, no, you really should hate a lot of people, uh, much less your family. Um, so what do we do with that? We, we've got to come to a different conclusion here. Clearly, Jesus isn't teaching that you should go home today and disrespect your parents or that you should call up mom and dad and say, hey, Jesus said I have to hate you, you know. And um, No, but, but you know what? If we minimize that word, I think we do a disservice to the scriptures and to the words of Jesus and to the intent of what he's teaching. No, it, it is a radical statement that he makes. We dare not soften this to the point where we ignore it. And I think we do that with the scriptures sometimes. We kind of work around it and go, well, you know, that doesn't exactly apply to me today. It may have been hyperbole. Jesus used that a lot. He said things like, if your right arm causes you to sin, then you should cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Um, was that literal? It, it was hyperbole, and this is probably a case of that. But at the same time, those 
those kinds of admonitions were serious and graphic, and they teach us something that is very serious and graphic. That that's the level to which we need to love and follow and obey Jesus, as if it came to it, we would even put those two relationships in opposition to one another and hate the one and love the other. What discipleship looks like is to value Jesus over every other relationship, even our own life. And Jesus said this. Like, a, a commentary didn't say this. Joel Osteen did not say this. John Calvin didn't say this. Jesus said, if you want to come and be my disciple, this is what you must do. He also said we must take up our cross. It's interesting that in our culture, we have sort of taken that phrase, and, and you're familiar. People say, oh, it's my cross to bear. You know, my... Um, my my carburetor is acting up, and it just my my car dies like every time I. And it's just my cross to bear, you know, um, and and uh, we we sometimes use that phrase to mean well I have this little problem and and it doesn't go away and and it's, you know in that day, that's not what that meant. Think about who were the only people who you saw carrying crosses. They were people who were going to lay them down at some point and be nailed to them. Jesus is saying you need to take up your cross. When we take up our cross, that means we expect that at any moment we might be called to lay it down and to, to make that kind of a sacrifice for Jesus. We wear crosses around our neck, and, and that's fine, and well, we should. But, it, you know, to people in that day, I think they would be offended. I mean, it'd be like wearing a little electric chair around your neck or, or a gas chamber. I mean, that was a horrific thing. So when Jesus said, pick up your take up your cross, and he doesn't only say it once, he says it in in Luke 9, Luke records, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And here's, here's where Jesus expounds on that a little more. It makes more sense out of what I just said. He said, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his very self? Jesus connects that with losing your life. That's the kind of thing that discipleship looks like. The second thing I want to consider is what does discipleship cost? As I said earlier, there's clearly a difference between gaining our salvation, to which we contribute absolutely nothing, and being a disciple, to which we apparently need to contribute everything. I, uh, when I was in college, I had a friend who was trying to make some extra money, and he got a job selling vacuum cleaners. Uh, we, my wife and I bought one of those Kirby vacuum cleaners when we first got married for about 700 bucks, which in those days was like... You know, that was like spending three grand on a vacuum cleaner. And we were just stupid enough to believe the guy's demonstration that, oh, this takes dirt out of my carpet much better than, the, you know, and the carpet will last for 100 years, you know. And, and, uh, and we bought a $700 vacuum. Well, my friend was selling vacuum cleaners door to door. And uh, he set sales records. He did great. And uh, everybody wanted to know how he did it. His boss was like, how, how, do you, how are you getting all these orders? We need to have you teaching people. And he said, well, you know, I just thought $700 was a lot of money, so I'm selling them for $50. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you can sell a lot of $700 vacuum cleaners if you only charge 50 bucks. That's a bargain. But somebody has to pay for that. And it's not the person who you're selling it to, apparently. He didn't have his job that long after that. But there's no such thing as free. There really isn't. Even God's grace is not free. It may not cost us anything. But it cost Jesus everything. It cost God a lot. There's no such thing as just letting a debt go. If I hit your car in the parking lot on the way out today, and uh, you know I, I 
crush Ed's fender, and, and Ed's a wonderful guy, and, and Ed says, Jim, you know, it's, it's okay, it's okay, you know, it was an old car, don't worry about it, just go back to North Carolina, and, you know, and, uh, and, and now that, that didn't cost me anything, but it cost Ed something, it cost him a dent in his fender, and if he gets it fixed, it's going to cost him a lot of money, and if he doesn't, he's driving around with a car with a dent in the fender, if I slander you, if I say something bad about you, and you, you say, Jim, I, it's okay, you know, I forgive you, well, it didn't cost me anything, but it cost you something. It cost you your reputation. Nothing, debts don't go unpaid. There really isn't anything as such as, as free. Forgiveness always costs something. But Jesus isn't talking about salvation here. He's talking about discipleship. He's talking about following him. And there is a cost. C.H. Spurgeon said, O count ye then the cost. And if any of you have taken up a religion which costs you nothing, Put it down and flee from it, for it will be your curse and your ruin. Counting the cost is very different than earning something. And anything that matters costs something. And things that matter a lot cost a lot. It's free. But following Jesus will cost you everything. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul says, By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not the result of works that anyone could boast. We're, but then he goes on to say, but we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's free, but God created you to do stuff, to do good works. That, that was part of the plan, that we would also participate in our sanctification, that there would be a cost that we would pay. We receive salvation as a free gift but we're saved for a reason, for a purpose. Luther said, we're saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. In fact, I think it's fair to suggest that uh, if we're not actually following Jesus in discipleship, we might not actually be saved. Because we're told that that's part of what it means to be saved. It's an indicator of our salvation that we are following Jesus. James Kennedy many, many years ago, um, the founder of Evangelism Explosion, he said, Jesus made a promise and a command, a command with a promise attached. He said, if you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And he said, so if you're not fishing for men, what does that mean? Maybe you're not following Jesus. Because he didn't say it was something you've got to do. He said, I will make you to be fishers of men. It was an interesting challenge. Well, Jesus gives us two examples of counting the cost. One is a guy who is building a tower. The other is someone who's going to war. They were very clear, simple illustrations. People would understand, yeah, I, I need to think about what this means. We need to count the cost because following and discipleship really does cost us something. And what does it cost? Doshal. Doshal tien. Howda. Doshal tien. Okay, what does it cost? What does it cost? It costs everything. Look at verse 33. Jesus says, the last verse in this passage we're considering, Jesus said, so therefore any of you who doesn't renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It costs everything, all that you have. This verse is really the key to the whole passage, I think, that we're looking at this morning. It costs everything. It costs all that you have. If you've been following the news, uh, in the last two, you know that in the last two years, there's been really an unprecedented persecution and crackdown on Christians in China. Um, churches have been bulldozed and pastors have been imprisoned, and, and not since the time of Chairman Mao has there been this kind of persecution. 
Um, I was in China when Xi Jinping was inaugurated or became the president uh, in 2012, and people at that time thought in the West, you know, this guy is young. Uh, he has a daughter that I think was educated in the U.S. Um, people thought he'll be moderate. You know, that the China's kind of moving towards openness and economic participation with the world, and and there seemed to be a, a relaxing of, of uh, things and freedom of religion. Um, my friends in China were were worshiping more openly in these call family churches, underground churches, um, and things were pretty good. And and with our ministry, we weren't terribly worried about things. I mean, we, we had a certain level of understanding from the church, the churches, the universities where we served. Um, but that has changed during his administration. And now I, people in their generation have never seen anything like this. And uh, I, I, I'll spare you a lot of stories that, I, that I've even experienced. But but it's not likely that me or my American staff are ever going to be arrested. We, we could be detained for a day or two and, and deported. That definitely could happen at any time, no question about it. But we don't really risk that much as Americans. But my Chinese staff, I have four uh, full-time Chinese staff people, they risk everything. They understand that every day of the week, there could be a knock at the door and they could be imprisoned for a really long time because they are aiding foreign missionaries. It's a big deal. And what they face in terms of the cost of discipleship is very different than what I face day to day. There is no uh, social advantage to being a Christian in China. Every Christian knows that you could, in China knows that you could lose your job in a heartbeat, your family could disown you, you lose your freedom, you could be uh, arrested, detained, arrested for long periods of time or jailed for long periods of time. Anyone who follows Jesus in China has counted the cost in ways that you and I will probably, hopefully, never be asked to count. And they've reached the conclusion that following Jesus is worth it, that it's worth it. There is a pastor, Wang Yi, uh, who's a pastor of a church in Chengdu. We have a lot of friends in Chengdu. I know a lot of men and women who our believers there, one of my former teachers married a Chinese gal, and they live there, um, and a lot of other friends that do young life work, um, Chinese nationals in Chengdu. And uh, he was very well known. Um, he had been an atheist and an, an attorney for many years and had spoken out for social justice, and then he became a believer, and then he became a pastor, and he had this church, underground church, very visible, but underground, unregistered um, house church, we were, you know, we called the underground church. And uh, in December, uh, he was arrested. And uh, he was taken away. And his wife later in the day was also arrested. They, the authorities allowed her to take their two young children to his parents' house, Pastor Wang's parents' house, drop them off. And then she was spirited away. And neither of them have been heard from since. Um, many of their elders were arrested. Some of them have been released. Some of them still have not been heard from. Um, very visible, <clears throat> but he, um, and, and honestly, I, I'll be surprised if they ever hear from him again. Uh, honestly, I can't imagine the government actually letting him go at this point. Uh, Lord knows where he is or what he's doing or if he's even still alive. But he wrote a letter to his elders with instructions that if he was detained for more than two weeks, they should release this letter to the public by whatever means they could on the internet. And of course, Everything is blocked in China. It's, it's not easy to get something like that out. But it has made its way around to China and to now to the Western world. And um, 
I, I'm going to read you just a few paragraphs from this. It's about a third of the letter. I've asked that, the, that this thing in its entirety be made available to you after the service, and uh, you can pick this up. But just listen to what the cost of discipleship is for Pastor Wang Yi, who is currently in prison. At least we hope he's still in prison. <clears throat> he says, On the basis of the teachings of the Bible and the mission of the gospel, I respect the authorities that God has established in China. For God deposes kings and raises up kings, and that is why I submit to the historical and institutional arrangements of God in China. As a pastor of a Christian church, I have my own understanding and views based on the Bible about what righteous order and good government is, and at the same time, I'm filled with anger and disgust at the persecution of the church by this communist regime, at the wickedness of their depriving people of the freedoms of religion and conscience. But changing social and political institutions is not the mission that I've been called to. It's not the goal for which God has given his people the gospel. I don't have the intention of changing any institutions or laws in China. As a pastor, the only thing I care about is the disruption of man's sinful nature by his faithful disobedience and testimony that it bears for the cross of Christ. If I'm imprisoned for a long or short period of time, if I can help reduce the authority's fear of my faith and of my Savior, I am very joyfully will willing to help them in this way. He sees his imprisonment as a helpful thing for the authorities who arrested him. He says, but I know that only when I renounce all the wickedness of this persecution against the church and use peaceful means to disobey will I truly be able to help the souls of the authorities and the law enforcement. I hope that God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my freedom that there's an authority higher than their authority, that there's a freedom they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus. I love this next paragraph. He says, this, if this regime is one day overthrown by God, it will be for no other reason than God's righteous punishment and revenge for this evil. Catch this. For on this earth, there has only been a thousand-year church. There has never been a thousand-year government. There is only eternal faith. There is no eternal power. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief towards those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom that I might take the gospel to them. Sounds like the Apostle Paul in Rome, doesn't it? Separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life, and no one can raise me from the dead. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my King and the King of the whole earth, yesterday, the whole earth, yesterday today, and forever. I am his servant, and I am imprisoned because of this. I resist in meekness those who resist God, and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. Now, I don't know that we will ever face that kind of persecution, and I'm not sure whether I should pray that we will or that we won't. The problem is I don't know how many of us, including this pastor, would be willing to pay that kind of price to follow Jesus. I can tell you that uh, if we were faced with that eventuality and we did pay that price, it would be well worth it. It would be a blessing beyond anything that we can comprehend 
And I know this because I watched my Chinese staff and countless other brothers and sisters joyfully paying that kind of price, being under the threat of arrest, facing persecution daily, worshiping in secret, losing jobs, having family members disown them. I see this day by day, and I also see the vibrancy of their faith and their hope and their confidence in a Jesus who they know and trust in ways that I simply don't. I know it's worth it because I watch them. A Chinese friend of mine told me not to pray for the end of persecution in China. He believes that it's well worth it to make the church in China know and love Jesus in a deeper way. So so what does all this matter this morning? You know, if a sermon doesn't produce application, it's, it's simply information. And I don't think you came here needing more information today. But I'm reticent to suggest an application for you. Um, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict and to teach, and it really comes down to you and him to work out the application, I think. But let me suggest a few things that matter, some things that are worth considering. I, for one thing, let me tell you what I don't think discipleship looks like. I don't think it looks like a public grandstanding of our faith, um, you know, trying to make ourselves a spectacle for the sake of Jesus. I don't think that's really what discipleship looks like. Um, I don't think it means where, where I live in the used to live in the Shenandoah Valley, people dressing in black and wearing hats and riding bicycles and having head coverings and all of that. I, I don't think that that's what discipleship actually looks like. Um, but I think what it does look like for me, for you perhaps, is, is a real evaluation of the things that God has given us, our time, our talent, our treasure, uh, the things that we invest our lives in. Uh, it's embarrassing. We just moved from, about a month ago, from uh, Harrisonburg, Virginia, to be near our grandchildren down in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, we moved to a somewhat smaller house, not a lot smaller, still ridiculously big for two people. Um, but it was kind of like trying to put five pounds of potatoes in a three-pound bag. You know, we, we gave away, and I mean, massive amounts of things, and then transported stuff to, to North Carolina, and we are now giving away massive amounts of things that simply cannot fit into the house. We've got a storage facility the size of this room that's still got like, you know, a third of it full of boxes, stuff that we don't need. I, you know, and I'm doing this, preparing the sermon and thinking, yeah, Jim, your time, your treasure, your talent, and what have you invested in? All this junk that you, drew, you took down from Virginia that matters nothing. It, 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 Jesus said to his disciples, that they need to renounce all that they have. How much of our discipleship is wrapped up in following Jesus for social advantage? That, that would be a question for us to deal with this morning. Let's be honest. If I stopped following Jesus, I would lose my job. I would lose my friends, a lot of them. Um, I would lose a great lifestyle, a lot of other good stuff, a reputation. I mean, there are a lot of reasons for me to follow Jesus that have very little to do with Jesus. Why are we following Jesus? How about you? I know there's not as great a social advantage in New, in New Jersey as there is in Virginia or North Carolina. I, I understand that. So in some ways, you're ahead of the curve, ahead of me on that. But is there something that makes you satisfied with a bargain basement Christianity? Have you ever counted the cost? What would you be willing to sacrifice for the sake of following Jesus? And rarely, when I'm listening to a message, do I lack for points of application. Nobody needs to tell me what to do. I know what I should be doing. 
it's nice to be challenged and reminded. And I'm sure that for you, I'm not going to suggest what it is you need to do, what step you need to take, because I think the Holy Spirit's more than capable of telling you that. But have you ever counted the cost, and what would you be willing to, to pay for the sake of following Jesus? How to? Okay, what does it cost? What does it cost to follow Jesus? Are you asking Jesus today, what is the rock bottom price that he might charge you to be a faithful disciple? I know I do that. Well, one last thing. Perhaps you're here this morning and, and you haven't bought into this whole thing and you're still trying to figure out whether I really should follow Jesus or not or if I really want to. And let me be honest, uh, neither Jesus or I are going to try to sell you a $50 vacuum cleaner. Um, our salvation costs nothing, which is really good news because you and I could never afford it. But, uh, but following absolutely does cost you everything. And let's not sugarcoat that as you're considering whether it's worth it to follow Jesus. Don't be a bargain hunter. Any belief that costs you nothing will net you nothing. But Pastor Wong and any Christian could choose to follow another route. They could choose the easier path. They could renounce their faith. Why don't they do that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because as the missionary Jim Elliott, who paid the ultimate price of his life to bring the gospel to uh, a tribe in, uh, in South America, as he said, a man is no fool to give up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So if that's where you are, you thought it was your decision to come to church this morning. It really wasn't. Jesus brought you here to hear this message. And, uh, and there's a challenge in there for you. But don't, we're not going to sugarcoat it for all of us. What it means to follow Jesus is to renounce all of those things that we hold more dear than our walk with him. Jim Elliott was right. <clears throat> we cannot, we're not, we're not fools to give up what we can't keep to gain that which we cannot lose. Purpose, joy, peace, eternal life. Will you pray with me? Father, your word is uh, hard sometimes. And, uh, and it's challenging, and it really gets to the core of who we are and what we're all about. And this passage is one of those that I, I wish you had not given us as your authoritative word. Um, honestly, it would be a lot easier to be a bargain basement Christian. And, and Lord, I ask your forgiveness, and I know on, a, on behalf of this congregation, we all do ask your forgiveness for valuing so many other things, things of no consequence over our relationship with you. Lord, may you bring conviction in our hearts. May you speak to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that uh, we are loved and treasured and accepted, and you died for us and paid the ultimate price. Father, may we consider how we would respond to that because of your great love for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.